0: What is the evidence of true spirituality? What is legalism? Why is it dangerous? Why is the Bible necessary for salvation? What is it that makes Christianity the truth and the way against all other religions? Is the church really a place or is it a people? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How can we know what translation of the Bible is actually correct? Does God want me to be happy? What does John 3.16 really say? What's wrong with the word of faith movement? Am I able to ask God for immense wealth? Is there sufficient knowledge for salvation in the Bible? Maybe you've had questions similar to these. Or maybe you have a question that needs to be answered. Well, your wait is now over. The weekly podcast of Theology Answers can be your guide to answering questions about Scripture, theology, church history, contextual criticism, Join us as we peel through the pages of Scripture and find the answers that you're looking for. You can find us online at TheologyAnswers.com and you can ask your questions there. We are a podcast as a part of the Striving for Eternity Christian Podcast Community. Join us there at StrivingForEternity.org. Today we're going to answer the question, What is Definite Atonement? or otherwise known as limited atonement or particular redemption, effective atonement. And then we're going to answer two other questions. Is the atonement real or hypothetical? And also, the second question, did Christ die for all men in general, universally, or did he die for a particular people, specifically? And depending on how you answer the second question, we'll tend to figure out what you mean when you answer the third question. The Bible says in John 10, Jesus speaking, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. When we talk about atonement, it is the satisfaction of the wrath of God and the expiation of the guilt of the sinner. And we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus really the atonement? Is he really the propitiation for our sins, and if so, who is our? The problem is, is that we tend to fall prey to what I like to call philosophical theology. In other words, we come outside the Scripture, and we come to the place where we're deciding that the Bible teaches something that it doesn't teach because of the way we think about who God is. I often teach in my preaching that we as a culture, not necessarily us in general, but we as a culture, as American Christians per se, we are easily we are easily trapped into this idea of building a different Christ and a different salvation and a different God and creating a caricature of God rather than actually holding to what the Scripture teaches in relation to christ and the gospel and in this particular instance the atonement and so when we think about the atonement we need to understand that the bible does teach the atonement the scripture teaches that adam made the condemnation of all of humanity an actual condemnation so in the same way the righteousness of christ will make salvation an actual salvation so what do we do with this how do we establish this well the answer is found in scripture so I'm going to let Brother Eddie take it away from here.
1: Yeah, actually, I was going to I was think the very first verse you uh, verses you cited in John, I think, is where Christ makes a very theological, significant statement pertaining to the definiteness and the specific purpose of the atonement. That is who it is. For whom he died. Just says the Father knows me, I know the Father, and laid down my life for my sheep. Or literally, uh, Hooper Tone, on behalf um, of my sheep. And I like later to look at that preposition because um, theologically, this, when, the, when Hooper is uh, used, as we'll see, it indicates a substitutionary atonement, which is very interesting, James, because I find, I've said this before, that almost all the Arminians use the phrase substitutionary atonement, but yet mm. it is a decidedly Calvinistic phrase yes. because it defines the very essence of what we're talking about. So i like to get right into it, James. And, and you, you mentioned those two questions. Question one, who was the son's, um, I, I like to use the term that John used: Who was the son's halasmas, his atoning sacrifice as in, Um, first John two, two, the, the actual taken of sin, the penalty of sin, um, was the son's atoning sacrifice real or actual, or was it, and this is the view of, I would say the majority of professing Christians, was it hypothetical or potential? And that's where we get the phrase, uh, universal atonement where God in this view makes men savable but he doesn't actually save them. They're merely savable, right? Right. And then the second question I I think would be helpful, particularly to the ones listening, for us to deal with, did God the Son make atonement halasmas? Did he lay down his life, taking the penalty of sin for every single person or specifically on behalf of the elect? And I think that These two issues must be addressed because it's normally not in too many churches. Mm. And um, I think we should look at some of the biblical phraseologies, the linguistic meanings, the ranges of words that just get into some exegesis to really show what we're uh, expressing biblically today.
0: Right. And I think a good place to go to start with that first question was the atonement real or hypothetical is to go to John's gospel and I'm not John's gospel but the letter to the Romans I got John on the brain here today but go to the letter to the Romans and 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 really look at what Paul teaches in regard to that and specifically that Paul uses some judicial language there in in Romans chapter 3 when he says that none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks, there in verse 11. And what he's doing is he's asked the rhetorical question, are Jews any better off because they followed the rules or had the law or had the word of God? No, not at all. Because Jews and Greeks, that means Gentiles and Jews, all are guilty before the Lord. They do not look for God. They do not understand him. They do not seek for him. And so he goes on to say, That in verse 20, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, we are unable to obey the law so that when we have it, even when we strive for it, we're still guilty. We're still guilty in Adam, and we're still guilty personally because we too have sinned against God. But in verse 21, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, here's the key, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. And so when we look at this, we're not looking at a hypothetical. Paul is speaking from a from a position of divine justice. He's saying that the sinner is justified as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward to satisfy his wrath and judgment. By his blood to be received by faith. Now, see, we could argue that, even though it says it very plainly, but we could argue maybe, well, we don't really understand what Paul's saying. If Paul had not said in the latter part of verse 25, This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that text right there shows us, brother, that Jesus died in order to satisfy the judicial requirements of God's holiness and righteousness, in that he had forgiven and forbeared the sins of the Old Testament saints, and they must be paid for. So therefore, there must be some type of atoning sacrifice that actually pays for sins. And of course, we see in that text that it also shows us (laughs) that it is for all who believe, not all people. Because all have sinned, but no one is justified except by faith in Jesus Christ, who did the work of satisfying the wrath of God. So that that that's my knee jerk initial jump in the jump in the fire text when someone asks me if it's a hypothetical or real. And I'm sure you could probably speak to the grammar of that and some other places contextually where the Bible is so crystal clear of the fact that the atonement is not hypothetical.
1: Right, right. Um, And of course, you know, I wish we had three hours because there's so many, there's so much biblical substance in affirmation of the definite atonement. Um, And it's not just the New Testament. Yes, we, we know that a lot of revelation is more explicated in in the New Testament, like the Trinity substitutionary atonement and the election, so on and so forth. But that doesn't mean we're not suggesting that it's the Old Testament is vacuous on these doctrines of grace, because they're not, or on the nature of God, the multi, the multi personal Yahweh of the old Testament. Right. It's not vaguous. Isaiah fifty-three eleven, which, um, I always compare with Mark ten forty-five, because they're so parallel. They even use the same adjective, uh, palos. by his knowledge, by the righteous one, my servant will justify the many as he will yes. bear their iniquities. This is God's people, their iniquities. And what did Jesus say in Mark ten forty five? for the son of man did not come to come serve, but to serve and give uh, his, uh, psuchain, his, his, his soul, yes. right? At, right. As a life uh, on behalf, anti, you got the preposition there on behalf of the many, the many um, you mentioned, and a couple passage I really want to explore that really, Um, I think, uh, grammatically, linguistically, um, exegetically, actually uh, lay out these things very clearly. And again, we're not saying you have to know Greek because you don't.
0: But if you You do, people
1: assume all these (laughs) these these high, you know, uh, Calvinistic passages, you know, you, you must know the Greek or when dealing with the deity of Christ. No, James, you don't have to know the Greek to, to explicate, to understand, to present the deity of Christ, the gospel, the physical resurrection. Right. Yeah, so we're right. not saying that all we're, What we're saying is since many, particularly Arminians or people that reject definite atonement since they're not satisfied with the English, well, let's give them some more. And prayed to the Lord that the Lord changes their mind, right. you know, through, through, the, through the Spirit. Um, you mentioned John six thirty seven and 40. I'd like to go through those um, in the context, because there's so much doctrine in John yes. 6, you know, right. dealing with o- other issues. But just as it relates to definite atonement, and i also like to go through what you mentioned um, uh, in terms of a passage so affirmatory, is First um, uh, John 2, 2. Okay. 1 and 2. And dealing with the word world there as well. And um the preposition on behalf of or Hooper. Now I know you've taught John six thirty seven and forty uh through forty, and of course you've taught the I've heard you. You've you've taught, you commented on John the entirety of John six, because there's so much doctrine, there's so much theology dealing with his, his deity, his pre existence, his uh, uh his is particularly what we're going to talk about today, his definite atonement and all these issues in John chapter six. What would you say in those passages um, are some of the more stronger points that deals that addresses the question was Jesus's halasmas or his atoning sacrifice? Was it definite or was it hypothetical? Right. Where do you find the strongest argument is in John six?
0: Well, it, it there, it's all over the place. The totality of John six gives you, and if you piggy, if you see that it comes after the the discourse with John chapter four and John chapter five, we see what is happening is that Jesus as Messiah is the is the one and only option, is the one and only Savior, is the one and only Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Uh, even even the angel, the messenger talking to Mary. We shall have a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. That's God with us. And he shall, what? Save mm-hmm. his people from their sins. Something that's interesting yeah. to, to stay focused on when we read John's gospel, and that's any letter, New Testament letter or gospel, but specifically John, the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 gives an outline of the totality of the rest of the gospel. And when we see this outline, what we see there is that Jesus is the living word who is God, who was with God in the beginning, who created all things. And what does he do in verse 18? He, I mean, verse 14, he, came, he became flesh. And then in verse 18, he is the God who is at his side, the Father's side, who makes him known. So Jesus is the God who makes God known. And when we see the outline there where John says that no one receives him, He came to the world, he created the world, but the world did not receive him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But those who did receive him, the parenthetical then, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, not by the will of the mind or the decision of man or the will of the flesh, or of blood, there's no genealogical essence to how you know you have eternal life, but by the will of God, the will of God the Father. Jesus reiterates this with Nicodemus in John 3 when Nicodemus as part of the Sanhedrin, who he calls, Jesus calls him the teacher of all Israel, and he says you don't understand mm-hmm. spiritual things because you're not born from above. You do not have the mind of God and your works, he says, what? Are darkness. You aren't believing, and you are condemned because you do not believe in the Son whom he has sent. And this is the work of the Lord, is that he gave his Son. He loves his people in this way, that he gave his Son, that whoever are those believing have eternal life. So in this, now, the work of Jesus Christ in John's Gospel, it's so intricate. It's so thick you can't get away from it. So when you say what verses, I say the totality of the whole gospel is so strict on the teaching of the grace of God, which we call the doctrines of grace, which includes and most importantly begins with particular redemption, definite atonement, is that Jesus did it. But when he says in John 6, I am the bread of life, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you see me, but you do not believe. And here he explains it in verse 37 why they do not believe. Because all that the Father gives me, and here's what he says, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So here we see the Savior saying that there is a work of God the Father to give him some people. And those people that are given by the Father will come, and this coming is the idea of believing. And those that are given will believe, and whoever believes, he will never get rid of. And so if the Father gives, then the, then the, then the person believes, and the Son will keep. And then he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But here it is, this eschatological phraseology, I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will, this is the imperative here, I will, it's a guarantee, raise him up on the last day. So he is saying there that there is a guarantee that those who are given by the father to him, when he does the work of redemption, when he lays down his life, when he gives his body and sheds his blood, as he says in the latter part of this discourse, he is the bread of life. So that believing in the finished work of Jesus is the only way you shall never hunger and shall never thirst, but you will have eternal life. And so I think that that builds a strong argument uh, Edward, that this is a this is a real and actual atonement. This isn't a hypothetical. That you know, I'm going to do some work for you. I'm going to make the options available. Because what is it that man could do if Christ has not satisfied the wrath of God? Right. What who are right. who are the Father giving to Christ? Everybody. It, i just don't see i see no contextual things that could give me the idea or the philosophy of a hypothetical atonement i don't understand where people would get that in my opinion i mean have you ever heard someone give um, you a proof text
1: yeah.
0: um you know
1: <laughs> there's there's not much exegetical interaction on these kind of on these kind of uh uh verses and and there's many we're not we're not Isolated in a passage here, but there's and you made a very good point. It's the as with the deity of Christ. It's not just one passage. It's right. the entirety of biblical revelation that teaches it in John six when dealing with John 6, um, 35 following actually all the way down. Uh, <clears throat> the The only response I I normally get to these kind of passages that are so definite is that uh, uh, well that that's saying that the Father. You know he sees all, and he gives all to the son. He gives the opportunity, so on and so forth. Right. But as you just pointed out, simply the text doesn't read like that. In fact, no. as as um, as we both know, in verse thirty six is <clears throat> Jesus is telling you why. He's telling you why all don't believe, and the first word in verse thirty seven is pass with the relative pronoun right. all that. All that the Father gives to me, Moiha Patera. All that the Father gives to me, and here's a definite uh, future indicative here. Hexe will come. Now he doesn't say they are prompted to come, or we're going to woo all people, or all people have a plan. And but he says that James a future indicative is a presentation of a certainty. Jesus promises they all will come, yes. only the ones that the Father gives. And interesting, look at the order. The Father gives first. Right. As a result, they believe or come. And, you know, coming, believing, all these participles that denote salvation uh, really means the same thing. Yeah. Eating his flesh, drinking his blood, coming, hearing. They all mean believing. They all mean faith in the, in the Lord. Yeah. And he, he says they will come, but they're, they're first given by the Father. And then he says and all uh, who is coming prosme all to me I will never I love the I love the phrase he uses never never ume ekbolo exo never never not even a possibility will I cast him out. Right. Then he says because I've come down from heaven not to do my will but the, the will of him who sent me and then in verse 39 as you quoted and this now notice he's defining now the father's will so yes. anyone that rejects the definite atonement of the son is really their problems with the will of the father. Blame it on him. Yeah. Don't blame it on me I'm, we're, okay. or, or you. We're, we're the message givers. Jesus defines the father's will in verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me. The next word in the Greek text is Hana. Hina. it's a purpose and result clause. This is the, the purpose yes. of this is for the result. Right. We have a purpose to result clause. This is the will of him who sent me in order that all pan all um, that he has given. Very interesting because in verse 37, it's a present tense, right. all that he gives. But this is all that he has given a perfect tense. That means it's a past completed action of right. all those, the same group that he has given. I lose nothing That's right. but raise uh, and always emphasize this point, raise alta it. It's a neuter pronoun. Why does he use a, a neuter raise it up on the last day? Because this is the same group as in verse 37 right. in which all the ones that the father gives to the son come. Um, I think it's a, it's an airtight, it's an exegetically, uh, affirmative passage that positively affirms, um, whether you use English, Greek enhances it, of course, but whether you use English or a Slavonic translation, it doesn't matter. Right. It tells you that he raises all of them up, though only the ones that the Father gives. So who did Christ die for? Definitely he dies for the ones, all the ones, not half of the ones, all the ones that the Father gives to him. Amen.
0: Amen. Yeah, it's a strong text. And it's not the only place, but it's where I go because it is just so inclusive there. And the and and everything that like you said, the causation. I like that. The word that, there you go, you know, hina, is is the result. This is the fact. The will of the Father results in the fact that those that he give me I shall not lose. But I will raise them up. I will raise them up. It's a promise. It's not just a it's not just a proposition for us to, to ponder. It's a promise from the Father. It's a promise from the from the Son. It's a promise, as we'll see, as we close out. You know, if you were, if we were to exposit John six, it's a promise by the Holy Spirit that the words that God, that Jesus speaks are spirit and life. It is the Spirit through the Word of God, as Paul would reiterate in Romans ten seventeen, that faith comes through hearing, mm-hmm. hearing through the words of Christ. So only the believing ones are those for whom Christ died. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's, that's, the, that's what the Bible says. So we, we're almost, almost answering our second top of this question. So we can say that the Bible teaches, the Scriptures teach very emphatically, very exegetically and synergistically that Jesus died to accomplish the payment of sin for a particular people. Uh, and that's what atonement did. It's a, he atoned for their sins. He gave, he took away their guilt and he satisfied their, ju- their judgment. And um, that, that's, that's a whole other podcast right there, you know, but that's what the Bible shows us. It's what Scripture shows us in that. What a beautiful, beautiful now thing. One,
1: one passage I know that um, is um, very problematic, uh, not, for, not for us, because, again, you and I and all Calvinists and Reformed believers um, who understand Reformed theology, at least, um, we look at Genesis to Revelation. And we look right. at the entirety of, of content of the biblical revelation to drive our exegetical conclusions, never reading out or never reading into the text, but of course, reading out the author's intended meaning. So it's not a problem for us. But what about, because um, uh, I've seen it so perverted, um, Acts chapter 13, verses what right. around uh, about 46 onwards, where um, the, the Jews rejected the message. Of of the Lord and Paul and Barnabas, I think in verse forty-six, they spoke boldly. They said it was necessary that the word of the Lord or word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiated the Jews and judge yourself unworthy of life eternal. Right. Now we're going to turn to To the the Gentiles. Gentiles, and he he gives that that awesome uh in isaiah that awesome passage um isaiah 42 42, 6 and 49 yeah 42 6 i think and and alluding to 40 49 6 um uh about christ as a light for the gentiles and look at the background that i mean if you're a gentile and you're listening to jewish uh to jewish theology you're 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 gonna feel you're out of the circle that's right you know How are you going to be saved? You know, and, um, but when they heard this, it says they, they, uh, they begin rejoicing verse 48 rejoicing and glorifying. I always make this point, glorifying the word of the Lord. Now, James, for someone to, in this sense, rejoice and glorify in the accurate word of the Lord. I mean, you have to be regenerated or you're right. going to glorify in false teaching. That's right. You know, you hit, so these were deep, after hearing and notice after hearing the word, they, they begin rejoicing. They begin glorifying. Yes. And then we read in, in, in inspired biblical literature in Luke's narrative. And as many as had been appointed, appointed. to eternal life believed. Yes. And we, you know, Every virtually every recognized English translation says the same thing as many as had been appointed to eternal life. Believe the reason why it's a past element here. And the word appointed is used because we have the pluperfect verb here uh, to tagmanoi. Now, I mentioned the perfect. That's a a past uh, action that was completely completed, (laughs) completely completed with residual effects. Right. Continuous effects. The pluperfect is a past completed action with effects up to a particular time. And here, clearly, they were appointed to the one, uh, they were appointed, uh, to eternal life, believed the point believed they're appointed. Then they believe, right okay. up to the time they believe. But the point here is with the pluperfect had been appointed, um, is that it's a, it's a done deal. They were appointed and only if you were appointed,
0: did you believe
1: are you going to believe yeah. right now you won't believe the argument that I've heard on this one. And actually, uh, I think I first heard it when, uh, it was from Norm Geisler. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> uh Dr. Robert Maury calls him Roman Geisler because yes. of sympathy to Roman Catholics. But, um, it was on a, uh, to, it, it, I believe it was a response to James White in his book. Um, uh, a refutation of Norm Geisler's book, which was a refutation of R.C. Sproul's book, chosen and Norm Geisler's book was chosen, but free. free you know, he right. called himself a moderate Calvin, whatever a moderate Calvinist is. Yeah. But um, he, believe- he claims that the word of, that the word appointed should be dis- disposed. Oh wow! Everyone that has been disposed like to a plan, and what's very interesting, I believe James White brought this up. The only translation that we can find that has the word dispose is the new world translation that's it <laughs> he, he is you know the, he, the King of agrees of the publication. Same render <laughs> yes that's the only one that has dispose wow. you know because right. it, it's just not linguistically accurate to get right. dispose out of to tagmanoy you, you just uh, out of the 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 perfect there uh blue right. perfect you can't
0: and if you, it's interesting, too, when you look at the narrative of Acts 13 after that, it, it, it's really important for us to reiterate the idea that these Gentiles were saved by the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, through the hearing of the words of Isaiah, of God through Isaiah. <laughs> they heard it. Mm. And they were brought to life. They were regenerated through hearing that God, through Christ, had brought salvation to the world, you know, be, beyond Israel. Everybody else was the world. Then Israel— is the picture of, a, of election in a temporal sense, just like Judaism is a temporal picture of the intimacy and the worship of God through the covenant of grace. It's a, it's a shadow of that. And so here we see after, what happened after that. What happened when the Gentiles rejoiced? The Jews were furious. <laughs> they were furious. And they stirred up they were, persecution. They were furious. They were furious. They incited people to go and and start persecuting the disciples, the the apostles. They hated the fact that God had saved the Gentiles. They hated it.
1: Now, you you interestingly you you used two uh, twice. You used the word world. You yes. use it when you quoted John one twenty nine behold the, the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world right. and then you quote it here of the world now if 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 i'm if i'm looking at the word world i'm going to say well james world that that means he's the lamb of god who takes all all the sins of every single person the world means every single person yeah. why do you use the word world and how do you deal with first with john 129 Right. Why would you use the word world?
0: Well, because the word is world. That's the point. But the idea and I use this example. I hate using examples that aren't exegetical. But let me use this example as a Georgia, as a Georgia resident, as a Georgia born born person who who escaped to the West Coast for a little while and then came back. Um, you know, we had the Olympics, the World Olympics uh, in Atlanta. I think it was in 1996. It was the year I got married. And the this. The actual slogan for the World Olympics in Atlanta was the world comes to Atlanta. Now, what does that, what does that mean hmm. there? Did it mean the totality of the human race, all six billion people piled into Atlanta? No, it didn't mean that. It didn't mean that the earth folded itself up into the center of Georgia. What it meant is that the representation of the world's people's were coming to Atlanta. In other words, it wasn't just the United States coming to Atlanta. It wasn't just the Floridians or the Tennesseans or whatever coming to Atlanta. It wasn't just the Europeans coming to Atlanta. It was, it was representative of the totality of the world's peoples coming to the Atlanta area to convene in that city for the Olympic Stadium to, practice the Ola- or to, 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 to compete in the Olympics. All right, in the same way, that context helps me understand what it was meant to say the world came to Atlanta is the same thing that we have to employ in our reading and understanding simple English, not to count the Greek or any of the language that we might find our scripture in. We need to realize the context. Mm-hmm. If we go to John 1, uh, we see what? We see Jesus coming to a Jewish area. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus is being uh, heralded as the Lamb of God by what? By a priest's son, John the Baptist, Zechariah's son. And here it was normative for Jews and Israelites to be out and to proselytize and to preach and to proclaim in their community. It's what they did. The center of their life was all around um, the, the temple and the tabernacle, no matter what season of life they were in. So it was normative. So when the world, those who were not Jew but who li- Jews who lived around them, began to look on, it was just, oh, normal day in You know, Judaism, normal day in Israel, normal day in Jerusalem. Uh, Another man's out there preaching. He's ugly and he needs to bathe and he's got bugs in his teeth. But, you know, he's just out there preaching. Now, all of a sudden, these people that hear John the Baptist and they hear him say, here is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. As a Gentile, as a pagan, as a Roman, I'm going, what did he just say? What is he talking about? Hey, because the world was negative. And the point of view. And we see that all through Scripture. Everywhere we see the idea of the world when it's taught by the, by the apostles is what? It's, it's dealing with the totality of the expression of the fact that all people, as we saw in Romans 3, are guilty. All people groups are guilty. When we look at the picture that John gives us in his apocalypse, we see that the the number was blasted out. He heard the number, 12,000 for the tribe, 12,000 for the 144,000. And then it says, he looked to see the number and he saw a number, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of every tongue and tribe and nation worshiping the Lamb. And so when we see the word world, it is in contrast to the idea of this jew of this jewish or semitic society contemplating the world as a negative loss and hopeless and to be hated people versus right, the, right. the people of israel who were just they were they were god's people just because they were born into the right family in their minds so right. the world is indicative of all people groups, not every single individual. Now, if we didn't have context and if we couldn't read all of Scripture, let's say we just had a couple of sentences or two or a couple of passages, then we would have to assume in our philosophy or in our inferences um, that world meant every single person. But, let's, you know, we, lo- we use John 1. It already says, only those who believe does he give a right to what? Be the sons of God, and that is done by the will of God. So then he came to the world that he created, but it didn't receive him. He came to his own, but they didn't receive him. So here we've got everybody poked into one thing. we got John chapter 3 where Nicodemus starts to confess that he is from God. Who are they waiting on? They were waiting on Messiah to come from God. Right. So in some sense, Nicodemus makes a public profession of faith, as we would call it in our, in our vernacular, uh, of Jesus Christ as the one coming from God. And Jesus says to him very clearly with the double main, our main, truly, truly, I say to you, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven except you be born again. And so here, right. when, when Nicodemus is thinking, and he's like, well, I'm the teacher. I understand what he's trying to say, but he's telling me some things that I just can't comprehend. And then he tells Nicodemus, yeah. as Moses, he goes to Nicodemus and says, you, all the things that you teach Israel and you don't understand these things, you know why? Because you have no mind that has been birthed by God the Spirit. Your mind is still hostile to the truth. Even though you study the Bible, you cannot see it. And Jesus reiterates right. this in John 5. And so when Jesus then says that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then he explains it. And Nicodemus is thinking right there as a Jew, wow, this is a prophecy of for our people, for us, for Jews. And then all of a sudden Jesus says, for God loved the world in this way. And it got Nicodemus' attention. Right. He loved the world in this way. That he gave the only son that he ever had, the only one that he had in order that those who are the believing ones will have eternal life. But those who are not the believing ones are condemned already, for they do not believe in the what? Son of God, in the name of Christ, in the authority of Christ, in the perfection of Christ. And here's the the context of John 3, in the atoning work of Christ particularly. That's the point. And so world does not mean all people without distinction. It, it, does, it, just, it doesn't mean that. It never has meant that. Um, whosoever is a variation as we'll get. Some people might have that question. Well, it says whosoever. Whosoever believeth, right. whosoever believeth not. There are two groups there. Those who are believing whosoever and those who are not believing whosoever they are. And it, doesn't, it does not teach that there is a worldly universal opportunity For salvation because here's the point what people need to realize is that when when we see a group of people who profess to be christians but they continue to reject the synergistic exegetical contextual teaching of scripture not what calvin said not what anybody else said not what contemporary theologians that we talked about already have said not what james and edward say But what the Bible teaches, when people reject the truth of Scripture, they are unregenerate. And that's why they can't see. That's why they can't believe in the truth. The Bible says you cannot see me because you have not been born again. The Bible says that you cannot come to me because you have not been made alive. You have not been given to me by the Father. Because if you had, you would believe. You see me, yet you do not believe. No one can come to me except the Father gives him to me draws him brings him takes him and gives him away and uh so that that's the well i got off on a little rabbit trail there but that's what the world means it's 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 showing that there is a overarching will of god that he was saved not a particular people of race or bloodline but some of his children exist in every people groups in the world he's not a he's it's that's why we call it unconditional election it's not anything that he sees right. in us, and it's not any special circumstances that he looks and decides, well, oh, these will be my people, and those won't be my people. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament is full of that very phrase, those who are not my people shall be my people. Right. That's the world.
1: Yeah, that's, um, I, I, I think when, uh, one of the problems if you're going to take world to mean a universal meaning in John one twenty nine, and we know that. And I think too many folks are unaware that the word cosmos in, in the Greek text has over a half a dozen clearly defined meanings. You know, it can mean every single person, like in, where is it, Romans 3, 319. It it can mean only non-believers, like in John one ten. Right. It can mean believers alone or the primary meaning is gentiles in contrast from jews or jews and gentiles or the it can mean the world system like in uh, john 12 it can mean the earth it can mean the universe as a whole it can be the known how about the known world um and so the role here is only context determines the meaning of cosmos and if you're going to say that in in john 129 that that means a you know the world there means every single person well Again, this is what we're discussing. You're going to have to look at the look at the term, the verb uh, "iro," uh, I take away, and you're going to say that's hypothetical and that's not a real taking away of the sins. Because if, so they you, did, if they did, you,
0: it would be universal atonement.
1: And yeah, it would be it actually would be universal salvation. Salvation. If they did, it would be a you know. Re, re, if he's the the atoning sacrifice for the world, not only do you have universal atonement, but you have a uh, a universal salvation, regardless if you believe in Christ or not. Right. You know, it doesn't really matter. Now, another passage that I think is extraordinarily uh, clear and useful that enhances our faith and makes us appreciate. Um, I think leads us to to just. The, the appreciation of the grace and election of God is in first John uh, 2 two yes I think and this is one also and, I, and it's incredible hmm. how not only Arminians, but people that just hold to this view that you know they don't they don't even know what an Arminian or a Calvinist is but they hold to this view is first John 2 two uh, I believe in verse one he talks about um, uh, he calls them little children I'm writing you these things so you, you won't sin then he says, "But if anyone sins, of course we have a parakletos. We have an, uh, an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. That's right. But it's in verse two, and it's a continuation. Um, he himself is, depending what translation you have, propitiation or the NIV. I think it says atoning sacrifice. And he himself is the atoning sacrifice or propitiation for our sins, not only for um, for ours only." But also for those of the whole world, two issues there. The first issue we just talked about, the word world, what does the world mean here? And it's always, what does it mean here? Not what does it mean? Too many people have a concordance style of study, you know, well, the concordance. And, um, but what does it mean here? But I want you to very simply too. It revolves around the term halasmas, which I, one of my favorite terms, because theologically when the scripture says Jesus is our propitiation, uh, it really does indicate that through his death, our sins as Christians were not only forgiven. That's one thing that it has a denotative meaning of, but divine anger, the very wrath of the father was circumvented, turned away the son's atoning sacrifice. It placated the father Yes. So the good news for us, it, it, this propitiation does two things. It cleanses and forgives us our sins and also removes the wrath due to our account. And one thing I want everyone to notice, because the argument to this is that by way of implication from arminians and others that deny definite atonement, is that he's our atoning sacrifice or he hypothetically is our atoning sacrifice, if you believe, you know the condition. If you believe, so he will be the atoning sacrifice as long as you fill in the conditions, right? As yes. long as you achieve belief, you know you find it in your heart that you need a savior and so on and so forth. But what refutes that, which most folks don't notice, and it's not something you have to go to the Greek because it's in the English. The the phrase right here, and I am looking at it in the Greek text, Kai altas halasmas estin, and he. Propitiation is the very last word is a present tense. He is our propitiation. If you're going to install a meaning of hypothetical halasmas, the problem is you've just congratulations. You you just affirm universal salvation because the word halasmas is not a a just, you know, not some ambiguous word that doesn't have a definite meaning. It's a very definite meaning here that carries two ideas. It means to play care, or appease. The person in hell cannot say in any way, shape or form that the son placated on my behalf, the wrath that was due. Right. Right. He can't because he wouldn't be in hell. That's right. So they, and, and many, and, and you and I talked about this before many pastors today down, totally downplay the aspect of the father's wrath by suggesting that the atoning sacrifice or the halasmas here merely means forgiveness of sin. Mm. Removing the lexical, linguistic meaning from the word for the sake of presenting a God as all loving, a no wrath kind of God. Right. But this halasmas, this present tense verb, um, turns all those arguments on its head. Why can't we just allow the scriptures to read for itself? Right. He is our propitiation, he is the atoning sacrifice which resulted in the forgiveness of sins, our sins, and it resulted in turning aside the divine wrath by absorbing the wrath himself that was due our du uh, on our account for the penalty of sin right and um oh and 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 then the the last phrase the whole world well. You know, Um, again, if you're going to say the whole world and congratulations, that means every single person is, is ha, their sins have been forgiven and the wrath has been placated. Mm-hmm. Right. But the problem, the problem is not only does it teach universal because it's present tense verb. He is our propitiation, but the whole world to John he's talking and this is how it's used. He's talking to his, his audience, right? His, his. Little children, his intimate audience, not only for ours, not only for our sins, not only did he satisfy the Father on our behalf, little children, but also even people outside this church in Ephesus. That's right. The whole world, Jews and Gentiles, and that's the only um, the you know the way you can actually take this, because if you apply universal meaning, you you you're gonna have it onto the text. You're going to violate the definitive aspect of the atonement and you're going to teach universal, uh, salvation. You know, I was just reading Romans one, eight, Paul uses the whole the, the same phrase um I thank God through Jesus Christ that uh, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world the same phrase is used are you going to tell me that this uh this haluto kosmo is every single person the whole world is every single person in Romans one, eight or Mark 133 the whole it says the whole city gathered so the same the same term is used here right so um so it just uh, leads to an inclusive or universal, uh, universalism, um, leads to universalism by taking the whole world to mean every single person and not understanding the linguistic value of halasmus. Right. Great uh, pastors, though. Amen.
0: That's right. And look at the context there, too, when you go back up to verse 1, where John is saying, I'm writing these things to you, my beloved little children, that you may not sin. Yeah. Man, and it's, it's the power of the gospel. You know, we don't 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 – Christ has died – to cleanse us from our sin. But if we say we have no sin, we are liars. The truth is not in us. So we know we have sin. So in, in that same sense, we confess our sins. We continue to relate to God personally through the work of Jesus Christ and through the authority in the name of Christ. When we see sin in our life, we, we say it. We say, hey, I've sinned because he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. He's cleansed us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not. And he's talking to people who are regenerate and who are eternally secure. Jesus the Son will not cast them out. And he says, I write these that you may not sin, but if you do sin, you, we, collectively, have an advocate with the Father. Now, why would we need an advocate? Because the Father is a righteous judge, and he was going to bring recompense upon all sin, Romans 1 and 2. <laughs> And then we have an advocate. So point. who's advocating for us? A liar? Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I took their sin debt. I took the punishment of their sin, Father. Or a true advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Right. And, I, and I look at this in verse 2. We can see that also in the sense that it is the noun propitiation. He is my propitiation. <laughs> he is satisfied. That's how he can advocate for me because he has satisfied the wrath of God the Father. So he can turn to the Father and say, okay, I see James sinning. I see the sin in his heart right there. He's not under your judgment, Father. I've forgiven him. You've forgiven him because I took the punishment of this sin. I've paid for it. You can't call this debt in. I know this isn't the way God deals with things, but I'm just doing it for the sake of our audience. To If we had to have this conversation in an earthly way, this is what it would be like. That's what John is wanting his readers to hear. They have an advocate. Do not bury yourself in the guilt and the mire of condemnation under the wrath and the fear of God. And he goes on to talk about the love of God. What? Cast away all fear. For the love of God, for the world that he is intending to save, is sa- he is satisfied mm-hmm. to love them through the finished work of Jesus Christ because he is the propitiation for their sins. And that includes the sins of all who believe, whether Jew or Jew. Or Gentile, whether Ephesian or Roman, it doesn't matter. Jesus has satisfied I the think, wrath of God.
1: I think in a future broadcast, maybe in Lex time, I'd like to go through also some of the passages, uh, particularly the big three of the Arminians. Um, you know, 1 Timothy 2 5, he desires all men to be saved. 2 uh, Peter 3 9, not willing any should perish. Um, you know, go through some of these, go, go through some of these passages and, uh, just deal with, um, you know, a biblical refutation. And of course the rule here is scripture does not contradicts other scriptures. You That's just right. give a great presentation on, on the definiteness of some of these <laughs> passages, especially as we saw in, in, um, passages like John six and, and, uh, in John's literature. And, um, you know, because when you're, when you're going to use, 1 Timothy two five, and when you're going to use Second uh, Peter uh, three nine, if you're going to use those in a in a to positively affirm universal atonement, what you're doing is you're contradicting or you're really um, showing there there's a. There's a converse. There's an opposition to the other passages that we just went through. You got to deal with all of the passages. That's right. See, I don't. You know, in First Timothy two five, I don't have to have some kind of uh, militant view against the other path or definite atonement, which the other ta- passages preach. I don't have to have a problem or a contradiction. I can just allow the verse to read for itself. Amen. Um. I think the old the, the and of course if we had time we can go through because there's so many but I think thus far we went through uh, John six we went through um, uh, John ten beautiful set of passages defining definite atonement yes. we went through second or first John two two and. Um, alluded to some others, oh, Acts thirteen forty eight. These are very strong, exegetically clear passages that present what we're saying today, that Jesus died for the, all the ones that the Father gave him. One more concept that I want to, before we end, bring out is that, as I mentioned earlier, that preposition on behalf of. Oh, yeah. because it's used in many places to express and this is what we're dealing with the actual and literal substitutionary or vicarious it was vicarious death of Christ substitution atonement now we know that uh, koine greek unlike english was a very definitive very defined language a language of precision yeah. james if you were were to write the bible in in um or a literature in english and i wrote the same uh the same account or the same set of mater- uh, congruent material. You know, we can use the same words, but really, we don't know. Even with the context, sometimes you don't know what you really mean because sometimes English words can be so vague and ambiguous and unprecise. Right. Well, not with Greek; it's nor We have an exactness. So there's a few passages, and we don't have to. We we can just quote them. Um, of the many passages where the aton- where the atonement is specifically in view, the New Testament authors chose this preposition "hooper" to indicate that Jesus's crosswork was a literal and definite substitution, not a hypothetical one, but a literal one. Along with the other passages, and here's a couple that I wanted to show. Uh, bring out is uh, first Romans 8:32. and of course we can talk all night about Romans 8. But in 32, I love it because the prepositions utilized to teach what we're talking about today. Um, the Father, Paul says, Paradocan, uh, delivered, delivered up for sacrifice, yes. him, Christ. Hooper over for us all specifically in light of a definite substitution or atonement. The father delivered Christ for whom for us, the believers Galatians one, four who gave himself Christ Hooper on behalf of our sins. Yes. This is a real substitution and Ephesians five, uh, 25 and I, for the readers, um, in your, in your own time, look at some of the other places where Hooper and anti is used um express in the strongest way a substitutionary atonement. Ephesians 5 Christ also loved the church and gave himself uh reflexive pronoun there, he himself gave <coughs> himself uh, up Hooper right parado Paradoca and Hooper sacrifice on our behalf, right? For her, on the behalf of her, the church literally it reads he delivered himself up for sacrifice on behalf of his church in their place and of course we saw in mark ten forty five, which another preposition is used anti which also semantically um and linguistically shows the concept of substitutionary atonement for the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom uh Anti, Lutron anti, ransom in the place of. So that literally reads, in the place of many. And, of course, we can, um, uh, one quote, Daniel Wallace, who is a Greek scholar, he says this about the prepositions. He says the evidence, now this is one of the foremost Greek scholars, Dr. Daniel Wallace. He's an incredible textual critic as well. He says this, the evidence appears to be overwhelming in favor of, of viewing anti in as in Mark ten forty five and also Matthew twenty twenty-eight, as meaning in the place of and in the very he says, and very possibly with a secondary meaning in exchange of. There's no escape of substitution or atonement. If you really value God's name as holy, like when Jesus expressed the Lord's Prayer, then we're gonna allow the Father to speak. We're gonna allow the Son to speak. We're gonna allow the Holy Spirit To work, right? We're going to allow God His monergistic work of of redemption, of the sending the Son to die specifically for the ones that the Father gave Him to die, Hooper, on our behalf. It's one of the most beautiful doctrines, and it's one of the most distorted doctrines as well by professing Christians.
0: Amen. There's there's a thousand hours of podcasting that we could do on these. Things and maybe I I try to do uh, every other week. I try to do a little podcast for about thirty minutes on hermeneutics. We might partner up on one of those, brother, and talk about how these verses are taken out of context. And uh, we might we might do that in the next week or two if we have time. In closing, we need to remember that as Paul would even continue to reiterate the gospel to the church of Corinth, he says that Christ died for our sins in fifteen three in accordance with the scriptures. So to say that Christ did not die for the sins of his people in accordance with the scriptures is to say that the Bible is not authoritative. And I tell you what, Brother Edward, that is what I see more than anything lately is in order to make all of these theological philosophies work and these false gospels work, people have relegated the Bible to an incredible resource, but not the authority of God. And we've already talked about that in a previous podcast, but of course, you know, if you're listening to this and have not heard that, please listen to the podcast on the authority of Scripture and uh, other things that we talk about. We will continue to come back to the idea that the Scripture, without it, and without it in its fullness and in its completeness, we have nothing and we should be pitied amongst all people because we have believed a lie. But we know that the Lord is the author of salvation. He is the finisher of our faith. And Jesus Christ is indeed the Savior of the world for all who believe of the world. And he has done the work of election. He has done the work of redemption. He has done the work of sanctification. He has finished the work of a propitiation. He has done it all. And what God the Father has done through Christ, all that we await as believers is that day when we're glorified to be like him, to be sinless forever. And we enjoy that opportunity to worship and to learn the word until that time comes. And I thank you all for listening. Brother Edward, if you have any closing thoughts before we go. Um,
1: You know, resist the temptation. Of reading into a tradition into the text, yes. it, it's very hard. But resist that temptation. Get up you know, if you don't have a home church, um, you can drive two thousand miles to go see James. If, no, <laughs> but if you don't have a home <laughs> church, make sure uh, you know you need you need a teaching church. Yes. You need a teaching pastor. It's very important because these things that we're saying, it these are not um, so scholarly that you know it's hidden from the average Christian. You know, Christians. This this is basic. <laughs> Bible teaching 101 this is just basic stuffs about how Christ saves how the Father chooses to save his people yeah. so it's very important that we uh, get into these uh, and embrace truth and so we're able to, ex- to we're able to explain truth and we're able to present the gospel accurately
0: Amen Amen. Well, what are we going to do next week? What do you want to talk about next week? We've got uh, the inability, total depravity. We've got a few things on our agenda that we want to discuss. Uh, what, what do you think we want to tackle next week?
1: Um, you know that we, we can either do we can either piggyback on this and do some of the um, some of the uh, verses used to to uh, in an attempt to controvert what we're saying. Let's do or that. We can do a completely different, and you know,
0: yeah. That, that's a good because idea
1: think, for me. I, you know, and I think we can hit the main ones, particularly 2 Peter 3 and, and 1, Timothy, Peter, 2, or 1 yeah. Timothy two five, and some others. Okay. And I think it would be beneficial if we do both positive affirmation and then deal with some of the um, attempted refutations.
0: Absolutely. Well, listeners, that's what you have. Friends, next week we will talk about some of the verses that people try to use to sort of circumvent the truth of scripture and use pretext instead of context to establish their theology and if you have other questions that are related to this or anything else please go to theologyanswers.com and submit your question there we'd love to talk with you if you have a question that you don't want answered on the podcast but you'd like a personal answer we will do that as well you'll see it all there on theologyanswers.com I'm James Tippins with Edward Dalcor. We love you. We're praying for you. And we're so glad that you took the time out today to listen to this broadcast. Go over to TheologyAnswers.com and get your questions answered. Listen to other broadcasts and find many resources to help you grow in the Christian faith. You can find more podcasts like these at ChristianPodcastCommunity.com.